Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. If you say, nope, I must use the pronouns that align with someone's biological sex, fine. I can have a conversation with you that I will work on your terms. Same with, am I a woman? Am I a man? It's like, it doesn't get to me because I'm not looking for my affirmation through the language of others. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I am joined by Julia Malat. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. I found you serendipitously through Twitter and the conversations that have been going on about gender. And I know in specific, that was more about the conversation that's going on in schools and even more specifically in Ontario. But this conversation is happening, I, I would imagine, not just in Canada and the US, but probably a cultural conversation around the world around gender and pronouns and bathrooms and all these things that are very sensitive and rightfully so topics. And what I loved about you, Julia, was that I saw you having this conversation in a curious, loving, open way. And it was one of the first times that I'd seen this being conducted where someone wanting to enter that conversation with someone who is trans is often afraid that they're going to be called transphobic or, you know, other different names that cause us to shut down that are inflammatory. So first off, so much gratitude with the way that you show up to the world, these conversations. And I've just so appreciated just like witnessing you in dialogue because I learned so much. So thank you. Oh, that's awesome. I'm glad. I'm glad you're enjoying the videos. The first conversation I saw from yours was about the schools and it was about a man who I believe he was concerned for them using a bathroom that potentially biological males would be entering. And instead of the school having a conversation with him, they just shut down the conversation and said they wouldn't tolerate this transphobic, I guess, rhetoric or language. 
And you had stood up for that saying, actually, this conversation is important. This conversation, these people should, anyone who has concerns should be heard. Maybe we can start there of like, what inspired you to start speaking up more? And I, I, I suppose for the listeners, why are you also uniquely qualified to have this conversation? So I, I transitioned about five years ago, or I started transitioning about five years ago, and it's a process. And I started doing that in private, and then eventually I came out at work. And when I came out at work, I sent an email to all of my coworkers, and I said, you know, I'm very open. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me about it. I'm, I'm certainly happy to talk. And nobody did. Everybody, you know, maybe said congratulations. And of course, they changed my name and my pronouns, but there was no conversation about it. And I was actually disappointed by that because this is a huge part of my life. I've spent a lot of time and thought, and this is very personal. And at first I thought, oh, wow, does nobody, is nobody interested? Does nobody care? But I realized after probably six months or so that people don't think they're allowed to have that conversation. Sure, I, I place the invite, but we're taught that you're not supposed to act like you notice when someone is transgender, the same way you're not supposed to notice if somebody has a disability. And this is a big part of my life. This is something that I would love to talk about. So that was kind of my first realizing there's something weird about the way that we handle this stuff in society. And then my daughter went to public high school. So she's my adopted daughter. She's actually my partner's little sister, but she's under my custody. And she moved in with me during COVID. And when she started going to the school system, she came from her, her birth parents live a few hours away and she was going to go to a big city high school here with me. And I was worried about it because I thought back to when I was in high school and if someone had had a transgender parent back then, I don't know if I would have been comfortable and I may have made, you know, made fun of that person and not wanted to be with that person. So I thought, oh gosh, is my daughter going to have problems? Are people not going to want to connect with her or be at our house because of who I am? And what I realized then was that we're in a completely different time. Not only was that not a problem, I was, I was cool because it's almost as if identity is I don't want to say hip, that might be going a bit too far, but it's glamorized in a way that at first felt awesome because I thought, wow, people like me. And then I realized this is too much because we have glamorized it to the point that people can be pulled into this maybe in a way that isn't helpful. I think that it's very important that transition is available for people who need it, for people who this enriches their life, but I shouldn't be special for being trans. I just want to be accepted and, and be treated normally. And then as I watched my daughter go through grade 11, or grade 10 and then grade 11, I saw thing after thing after thing where it's, we just can't talk about this stuff at all. Where we had a place in time when transgender people were not accepted and that was discriminatory and very difficult for people who transitioned 15, 20 years ago. And we have corrected for that, but we've corrected for it in such a way that we've really just taught people that you can't have these conversations. And if you have concerns, you can't raise them because the concern itself is transphobic. Not how you say it, not the response to it just simply that I have a concern is transphobic. And so people don't talk about it, but it's building resentment. And in the story that you talked about there, uh, his name is Nick Morabito. He's a parent up in Ottawa, Ontario. And he went to his school board to delegate. And he just wanted to speak about washroom usage because he was concerned about biological male students who were still beyond testosterone and have everything that comes from that in the, in the female washroom. And his presentation, he got 37 seconds in when the chair of the board shut him down. And they didn't even post the video, but I was sent the video by somebody else because they knew that I do a lot of work in the space. And when I watched the video, he was not talking about a specific student. He used all the right language and terminology. He was just saying, I'm concerned about this. 
what can we do about it? And of course, he's just a parent. This is not a domain he knows a lot about. He doesn't know all the ins and outs of the politics. But they, as you said, they shut him down and said, no, we cannot have this conversation. This is um, harmful to transgender students to be talking about this. And so I just made a video where I said, we need to be able to have these conversations. And when we don't allow it, it makes things worse for transgender people because people know that that something is wrong there, that we're not in a good spot in a democracy when we can't have dialogue and discourse. And people end up blaming transgender people. It's easy for them to resent me feeling like I'm shutting down the conversation, not me specifically, but transgender people like me. Yeah. And so that was kind of what got me started down the video path that I'm on now. Well, gosh, your perspective has obviously been very welcomed. And even that idea that, you know, when that man's being shut down and this idea that we can't have this conversation because it's harmful to transgender students. This isn't something that I just see in the conversation about gender, but I think this this has been happening for a long time, especially in colleges, you know, this lead up to this space that we can't talk about the realities of life and, you know, biological sex, all these kinds of things, because if we do, the potential truth or the exploration of truth, and I know truth is also subjective, is harmful. To me, like, language like that, is, you know, whenever dialogue um, is met with this idea that words are violence, language is dangerous, what it does is it inflames the nervous system and the people having the conversation. Of course, someone doesn't want to be dangerous because they're asking a question. I, I actually think the lack of dialogue is actually quite dangerous. And what you're saying, that we then project the resentment of the lack of dialogue actually onto the people that other, even straight people are saying, we can't have this conversation because it'll hurt transgender people's feelings. And then now we're targeting trans people. rather. And yeah, it's the culture of no conversation is, I sense that it's changing. What's your sense about that? When you say changing, um, to me, it's it's like reaching becoming a, more open. Yeah, like it feels like the threshold of silence has actually. I feel like people are now angry. They're yeah. angry that we can't talk about these things. That, especially parents, you know, like parents. I'm a new parent, so my our son is only uh, fourteen weeks old now. So you know, I didn't understand mama bear and daddy bear. You know, all the sayings that we have, but I do now. And just you know, this idea that schools and stuff are going to decide what conversations are okay and that they know better. They even teach the kids that they know better than their parents, which is really fascinating too. I think that's, a, you know, if you look at the history of governments, that's actually one way that they create wedges between child and parent. Well, that is precisely what we're dealing with in Ontario right now. Every school board in Ontario, Catholic and public, except for one board, has a policy that if a student comes out at school and says, I think, I think I'm transgender. I would like to go by this new name and this pronouns, but I don't want my parents to be told. I'm not comfortable with that. The schools have written policies that they won't tell the parents, that they'll tell all the teachers, you know, that Jimmy is now going to be Jennifer. They'll tell, so they'll the entire tell class, all the teachers? All the teachers, all the classmates, so they all know, and they actively won't tell the parent. They'll revert back to the, the biological name on report cards and then he calls home. So it's, it's taking a very active role here. And the assumption in wow, all of that that's is... that's like participating in the secrecy. Well, precisely, right? It, it's, it's not just, you know, the student's doing something on the playground and you, you're getting involved. This is actively taking a role. And they do it because of the, the fear of what if the parent isn't accepting? What if the kid gets harmed, yeah. actually harmed by having their parent know? And those are, those are risks that could occur. But 
those risks exist in everything. If you send a report card home with a bad grade, there could be harm. And in every school board I've ever worked with, they have a policy in place that if we suspect harm, we work with Children's Aid Services because they have the ability to go in and understand the family, support the family, see if there's a bona fide risk or not. And in this one area, we say, no, it's too risky. We, we, we shouldn't do it. And for me, as someone who's transitioned, that's very scary because comorbidities are so common in this space. People who experience gender dysphoria many times can experience other things too. And sometimes those other things come out of the gender dysphoria and not having dealt with it. Sometimes it can go the other way. You have bipolar, you have borderline, and that might be leading to feelings of gender dysphoria that maybe aren't warranting transition. And I, I do know people who have transitioned and regret it. I actually know one woman who's suing her doctors now because of what she's lost through that. And so I'm certainly not anti-transition, but I am concerned that we want to make sure we do this right. We have the right supports in place. And yeah. we're in this place where we almost assume the parents might work against and just in case we better not tell them. I mean, to me, that is actually the the most dangerous perspective is like actually saying, we're not going to tell your parents and make them participate in this, which of course is just going to make parents not trust these institutions, which already are starting to lack trust, including the medical institutions, right? And when I think about this conversation of transition, especially very young, I was watching a video and again, if I say anything that you're like, can I give you, just give me feedback. I'm totally open to it. I want to make sure that I'm having this conversation with grace and mindfulness and awareness. I was watching a teacher talking to a group of students sharing and they were probably five years old, maybe four or five, probably five because it looked like kindergarten kind of class. And this uh, teacher identified as they, them, had a little doll and was saying, what, you know, what do you know about this doll, blah, 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 blah. And then they were saying to the kid that, to the kids that this doll is actually not what they perceive as being a boy doll. It's actually not. And that you can be born in the wrong body. As someone who has studied psychology and child development and has a deep passion for this, I was like, okay, this is interesting because, and I want to know your opinion on this, especially as someone who's been through this. I was like, if you teach a child that they could be born in the wrong body, one, that's way too great a concept for a child's brain to even understand. Like these kids are still, you know, the Easter Bunny still exists, you know, all these types of things. And just to understand that that sentence is too big without it being even brought down to very specific language, which my guess is that they're not capable of even understanding. And what it does though, is it plants this seed where the child now is, and if you grow older and then you're like, I was born in the wrong body, and that's why I want to be mindful of my language to see how you feel about it, is that I am now a victim of God, the universe, nature, because they did me wrong as soon as I came in to this world. But I think it's interesting to start to see this. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on teaching that message young? I know that it's not happening everywhere, but it, it is happening. Yeah, no, I, th I think it's important to start off by saying what you just said there of it is absolutely happening and it's not happening everywhere. I, I work with a lot of schools. I see a lot of things that are coming out and it's usually specific teachers who are really passionate about this topic. Um, so it's not everywhere. Yeah, I could I, see that. Yeah, but it, it is happening. I've seen, that, I've seen that material as well. And I don't think that's a helpful way to approach it and certainly not at that, at that age because- right. They're looking at kids like me. I, I've always felt this way. And they say, we want to support the Jasons of the world. My, my name is Jason before I, I transitioned and, and became Julia. And you don't need to. 
because those kids deeply know. I knew so badly that by the time I was 12 years old, I was Googling online because I knew I felt this thing. And I'm like, how do I, how do I become a girl? And then I found stuff about being transgender, even though this, there was nothing on health sites at that point, there was nothing on educational sites. And I still found my way. So I think that now we have a system that is much more aware of this. They're looking for the signs. There was lots of signs with me. I had four counselors before grade six to try to say, why can't Jason find friends? Why doesn't he connect with the boys? All of these things. If a kid is really struggling and we're looking for it, we're going to see it. If we have one conversation where we just say, we're all different. You know, some people are a Christian. Some people are Muslim. Some people are gay. Some people, you know, they, they end up living like a girl when they're a boy because it, that's what works for them. If we just sort of say that, that builds acceptance. That teaches kids we need to accept and love everybody. We don't need to go deeper because if, it, if, this, if the kid really is in that space, they're going to hear that and they're going to latch onto it and they're going to be pursuing that because they go, oh, that's me. And if they don't, that's because they, they aren't at a place that they need that. And that's great. Interesting. But it just isn't helpful. I think people can get trapped in it at that point. And identity is something we're all searching for. And as I look at myself and the various ages of development I went through as a kid, you're looking for ways to fit in. You're also looking for ways to be unique and to be special. And you find that identity in what you wear and what you do and what you say, all of these things. And this is another area where you can find identity. And there's nothing wrong with that until you remember that this involves surgical and hormonal transition. This is not just a sport that you want to play or a musician that you want to listen to. And so I do want to create an environment where it's not stigmatized, where the shame isn't there. Because I had a lot of shame coming out of how I felt. And that's something I would love to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure we'll get into, but we also don't want to glamorize it. We want to de-shame, but also just sort of leave it neutral so that it's available for the kids who need it. That makes sense, that it's not a place that you go to become special, but that you don't feel like you're now othered because you have a different way of being, feeling, moving through the world. Exactly. You know, there's many different ways that people present with gender dysphoria and there's many pathologies. Like you said, they could have bipolar or whatever. And what I find interesting about the conversation in Canada, because I'm a bit of a part of, I just see so many from all over the world, but especially Canada and the US, is this statement of gender affirming care. And what, again, I find this, again, to be fascinating, but I'd say fascinating because it's a bit challenging in that if someone came with this, I'm not sure I am this versus that or whatever it presents as, that the therapist or mental health worker who's working with them is not allowed to actually question where that might come from or what. And to me, I'm like, that's actually not providing help because either way, you're going to get to the thing you need to get to, but to be afraid that you might get to a thing that hurts or that they won't feel loved, they've already experienced that. They're presenting as that. And so I don't, I'm sure there's a way as much as you're saying, as well as how you're saying that there's a way to talk about diverse ways of being without saying you're born in the wrong body. You know, there's ways of affirming someone's exploration with right away saying, you're right, because if we don't say you're right, we could get in trouble, we could get fired. Like in some places, if a therapist doesn't provide affirming care, they can lose their license. Uh And I also would like to talk about the shame that you had and how you alchemize that and move through that. So to be more clear, what do you think about just the blanket idea that we must provide gender affirming care and that's the only option and that can't include any curiosity or questioning of what brought in Uh, gender dysphoria. We have gone through a transition in how we think of transgender matters over the past 15 years. The 
attitude that we had 15 years ago was that, in a sense, this is a disability. And that doesn't need to be with stigma, but there's something wrong with, with me. And this is how I think of it as well. I am biologically male. We all know that. And that didn't work for me. Why didn't it work? We, we don't really know. Maybe there's something physiologically there. Maybe, maybe my brain is biologically more aligned with female patterns. Maybe it's purely psychological. Maybe it's my upbringing. It, it could be all of these things. But for some reason, something's going on. It was not working. And so we live in a compassionate society that wants to see people thrive. And there's a solution here that we can utilize that allows me to thrive. And so I'm able to do that. And I, th- I, and I think it's wonderful. That's how we used to view it. How it's tending to be viewed now is more diversity is a good thing for the sake of diversity, that think of your gender and your sexuality however you want, and wherever you land, that is a good thing. And I don't quite buy into that because when you transition, there are complications. There's costs, there's surgical risks, there's other medical risks, and there is still a lot of stigma as well. And so there's this is not a path that I think is a better path. I think it is a great path to be available for people who need it. But if there is a kid and they're indifferent, they I could I could transition, I could not transition. I want us to say we should not transition you. We should if if you're fine with the sex you were born in, that's great. <laughs> then we should leave you there because then you will be fertile and you have all these opportunities. And what you described is what we're seeing though, that the therapists have to be very careful because in Canada we have an anti-conversion therapy law. So they don't want to cross into a territory that might be deemed trying to convert or convince somebody that they're not the way that they identify. And I think that that's well-meaning, but also problematically written because a therapist should be able to help you work through it, not to convince you, not to gatekeep and say, you can't, you can't be affirmed the way you want to be, but to wrestle through it with you and say, but what, is this the right path you're looking for? You think this is what you're looking for? Maybe it is. Let's explore. Let's make sure this is it because it could be something else. And when you talk to people who have detransitioned, that's what comes out is that wasn't what I needed. And now that I've gone through surgeries, I've come to learn that wasn't what I needed. And that, that's where I think people are getting stuck. And it's very scary right now because we also have lots of, especially teenagers coming in. And this is becoming an identity thing. There's a lot of people who follow their friends into it. it. You get these groups that are heading that way in schools. And we've all been there. You know, your friends listen to this music, your friends have these tattoos and you go along and tattoos have some implication for the rest of your life, but these things can have a lot more. Yeah, my understanding is that gender dysphoria historically showed up in boys far more than girls. And now the transition from girl to boy is actually dramatically increased. Like I forget, there's a journalist who's written about it. You'd probably know the stats better than me, but it's something like a 4,000% increase. Like It's huge. Yeah, and the argument is, well, the world is more open, and so that makes sense. But the criticism of that argument is, well, then we'd see that or a similar increase in every age group. Can you speak more to that? Is it like, from my understanding is that there is an element of like how, especially teenage girls manage anxiety and things like that is sort of becomes viral, like cutting was for a little while. And not to minimize like someone's transition as just being a coping mechanism. I certainly don't mean that. But yeah, can you speak a bit to that? Yeah. So what you described is exactly correct. That back when I was a kid, I think it was something in the realm of 70 to 80% of people who transitioned were born biologically male and they were transitioning to be women. And now it's completely reversed. The vast majority are actually teenage girls who are transitioning to be men. But it's not that the numbers have decreased. There are still more boys transitioning to girls now than there were back 25 years ago. 
but we've added this massive quantity of girls who are transitioning to be boys on top of it as well. And the pattern tends to be the same, which is it occurs around puberty. So this is something we see arise in those early to mid-teen years, um, right around the time that you're starting to grow breasts and you have your period and you're becoming sexualized and all of all of those things. And mm-hmm. people then come and and have this this new identity where they identify as sometimes it's non-binary, sometimes it's it's male. And I'm not here to say whether any given person is valid or invalid. I I obviously can't diagnose that and it's complicated. But what we are seeing in the numbers is certainly concerning that we have such a huge proliferation of that. And for me, what I've noticed, I do work with a lot of teenagers and have a lot of them in my life here with the work that I do. And often the transition doesn't seem to make them happier. They go along with this. They're they're finding their place and they kind of move into that LGBT space and they have that community, but they don't seem to be happier. Those are the ones that I'm the most worried about. My my daughter is 16 and she has a friend who is born biologically female, transitioning to be um, a boy. And this friend feels different than a lot of the ones that I've seen. He's very, very grounded. And he comes over to my house a lot. And we were chatting about this once. And he hasn't started puberty blockers and he hasn't started on testosterone. And he's almost 17. And lots of kids by his age have done that. And when I was talking to him about this, he said, it's a, I'm really, I want to, I'm excited, but it's a big decision. It's, this is a big decision. I really want to make sure I'm sure it's a big, there's a lot of risks to it. And I thought, wow, what a level head. And yet, this is also the kid who I think of all the ones I've seen, I'd be most comfortable because this kid seems so happy and seems so prosperous as a boy. Not, it's like this kid has found themselves and, yeah. and yet this is the kid who is, who's waiting. And this kid's also said other things to me too. Like one time we were talking about transgender as an identity because sometimes people can hold their LGBT identities very tightly. And, and this individual said, I don't really identify as transgender. I, I am transgender. It's a fact about me, but I don't give it a lot of thought. I'm just, I'm just being me. And that to me is a really healthy relationship with your identity compared to some of these people where it becomes their everything. And it's almost like they get angrier once they're trans, uh, in a transgender identity because of the problems and challenges they see in the world. And then they're looking to push back. And I don't know, it just doesn't seem that it's leading to, uh, to a state of joy, which is what I have found in my transition as well was a a state of liberation, a state of lightness, a state of peacefulness. Absolutely, yeah. Recently, I had Shervine on the podcast, who's the founder of the supplement company Symbiotica. And I discovered Shervine far before I discovered the supplement company. And I just fell in love with how he lives his life with such integrity and intention. And it made me dive deeper into his products. I kept seeing the brand pop up everywhere, and now daily I take the vitamin C, I take the D3K2, I take the magnesium, and I also take the creatine, but they have a whole lineup of products. The reason I love the company is they design sophisticated, organic, nutritional formulations that are scientifically proven to increase vitality and longevity, and they really fill the nutritional gaps that most of us have from our typical modern day diet. Their supplements are sourced from only the highest quality plant-based ingredients, and they utilize the most advanced absorption technology, which is really important to me. So if you currently take supplements or you're looking 
to find a company that makes great ones and sourcing from a company that has great integrity and uses organic products and the highest quality products, then Symbiotica, you got to give them a try. So if you go to Symbiotica.com and you use the code Groves at checkout, you get 15% off. So you just put in my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S, you get 15% off anything. I mean, they have so many different supplements. I'm sure there's the right fit for you. And you can get up to 45% off when you bundle a few products. So try out a few of them and see which ones you like. So again, go to Symbiotica.com, use the code Groves at checkout, and you'll save some money. When I was listening to one of your podcasts, you interviewed, I think it was a conversation between three three people, but you had one guy who was saying that gender is the only thing that if you say I'm, you know, I, I was born in the wrong body or that I'm actually not what I was born as, you're instantly a victim. Am I getting that right? It was a really powerful yeah. statement. You shared it on on Twitter. Yes, that was Neil Doran. Um, and yeah, no, he has a he is not transgender, um, but he has a lot of he's done a lot of research in this space. And that was exactly what he said that when you look at a lot of the marginalized identities, this is the only one that you can self subscribe into. And and he did caution and say he's not saying that's what people are doing. He again does not know any given person. Yeah, of course. But there's something to be said about that. I do think that. There's something to be said about this draw we seem to have to want to be able to be in a victimized place. And for me, that that's some, a, a journey I've gone through. So I had executive life coaching a few years ago, which changed everything for me. And I had this just as I was starting my transition. And when I first transitioned, I, I was still in a very self-victimizing place of looking at some of the challenges I had in my life and putting those in other people. But when I had this coach, he would tell me to be causing the matter in all things was the phrase that he would use. And he would say, I, I take a stand, Julia, that you are the cause of all matters in your life. And I thought, oh, that's inspiring. And I liked it. So I kind of was trying to live by that principle for a, a few weeks. And I think maybe four or five weeks later, I went back to him annoyed. And I said, I'm not the cause in the matter of everything in my life. Look at all these things that are happening to me. And I told him some examples from that week. And then he said, I never said that was true. I said that I take a stand that you are causing the matter of everything in your life. And he clarified that that's not true, but it's better to live as though it's true than it is to live as though things happen to you. And for me, that was one of those moments where I kind of flipped and I thought, oh, wow, I really, I can make this whatever I want to make this. And I think that when you, when you transition, it's very easy to not be in that space because inherently you transition and you usually do that privately at first. So you go and find a community who affirms you. You may be not ready to tell your parents or your coworkers but you find a support group where you find a few close friends and you stay there where they're going to call you the pronouns you want and they're going to call you the name that you want. And it's easy to keep staying in that affirming place because the world can be scary and the world can be cruel. And the more we stay in that spot though, the more we're not living our full life. And then it's easy to get into that victim mentality of everything you don't have and blaming the world for it. And that, that was where I was, but it's something I've been able to break th uh, through from. Yeah. That transition to like the uh, having a responsibility for any everything in our lives, or at least the things we say yes to and agree to keep in our lives, is so powerful because all of a sudden now we're we're in charge. You know, who do we want to interact with? How do we want to perceive things? Unconsciously, I do think we are drawn to taking on that type of identity in order because you get power from it. It's an inversion of the way we perceive power, though. And in some of the research on victimhood and virtuosity. It is like I, in, when they study, like if you put in a, give a GoFundMe bio 
you know, you just say, I need money. Here's what I'm doing versus I need money. Here's all the traumas I've been through in my life. You'll get more money if you write about the traumas you've been through in your life. And I say that not to minimize the importance of supporting people who've been through traumas, but how easy it is for us unconsciously to see that that is a way we can source power and significance and then that actually occur. I think there's so many cultural and confounding factors that are moving in all of these conversations, conversations about gender, conversations about race, conversations about vaccines. Like all of this has been, we can't talk about it. And if you do, you're bad and you're anti and that's actually been the hardest part is if if you just want to have a conversation, you're instantly put in this box of anti, but all these incredibly good human beings actually just want to have a conversation and they want to understand. You know, I want to understand and I, I feel like, you know, for you and I and for other people who are willing to have this conversation, it's important that we do take the grenades because we have to model what it means to be two adults who are curious that if I offend you, you get to say, Hey, actually that didn't feel good for me. And I'm, and I get to learn something and, you know, vice versa. But the fact that we can have this without reactivity and like, I know that when this conversation is done, we're going to have cultivated a deeper relationship and other people listening are going to have learned so much which again, I just have to keep like saying like, thank you for being brave because what has been the response of the maybe more aggressive activists to your openness? Well, before I answer that, I'll say, I try to be very careful how I use words like hate and transphobia. Because like you mentioned earlier yeah. on in this conversation, those words are being misused. There is a crowd that uses it for anything that they don't want to talk about. You want to have that conversation about washrooms? That's transphobic to talk about it. And I, I can't accept that. We have to be able to have conversations. So I reserve those words for when people have a genuine disdain and contempt towards me about my identity. And that does exist. There are those people out there. That's not most people. That's very, very, very few people. And I think that's why I can have the conversations that I have. Because there's these whole crowds of people that get shut out from even knowing a transgender person because they have a concern, because they don't know something, because they are uncomfortable being forced to use pronouns that don't feel authentic to them. And they're kind of told, well, you are, you are transphobic because you won't do this thing. Or maybe they even just mess up pronouns sometimes because it's hard. I get it. I have a low voice. It's easy to say he, him. And so I, I push through that by saying, no, it, it's transphobic if you have contempt for me and you're trying to hurt me. If you come at me you know, with disdain, then that's hate. If you come at me with an open heart and you want to get to know me, I don't care what you say. I will never consider that to be hateful. That's, that's always an opportunity to have a relationship. And so that's allowed me to make a lot of close connections across our political spectrum and across the, the spectrum of opinions on transgender matters. I have friends who are transgender. I have friends who are deeply progressive, but that carries over to I have friends who are gender critical. I have friends who are very conservative, who are very religious and these people just want to love as we all want to love. And I, I try to create yeah. that space where we can connect. However, there are those factions, especially on the extremes, where hate really does live and thrive. And so for me, I, I kind of have three different categories of hate that I've conceptualized myself. The one is the trans rights activists themselves. So these are people who are pushing strongly for transgender rights, um, but it's very rooted in a, in a postmodern way of conceptualizing the space. And so they, they tend to have a very rigid oppressed oppressor mindset. And 
the world of non-transgender people oppresses transgender people and we have to push back against them. And so to them, me talking to these people who they view as the problem simply because they have a concern or two about some, a policy or something that's going on, they then view me as a big threat because I'm giving legitimacy to these people and I'm kind of propping these people up by being transgender and engaging with them and having community with them. So I, I do get a lot of hate from that group. Um, and then there is the, the far ends of the religious space. Again, I have tons of friends who are religious and, and I, I think it's wonderful. I spent 30 years in an evangelical church. So it's, it's definitely a space that I, um, I know and I love dearly, but there's obviously certain factions where hate flourishes in religion, where the attitudes not follow Jesus and love. The attitude is you must believe this and you must be like this, or we're going to, we're going to direct hate towards you. So that, that does exist as well. And then the third group that I think not everybody is aware exists is what's known as radical feminism. So the radical feminists, it's a movement that comes out of the 70s, and it uses that same postmodern mindset that the trans rights activists utilize of an oppressed oppressor mindset. But to them, it's men are the oppressor and women are the oppressed. And of course, in all of these spaces, whether we're talking about transgender, whether we're talking about man-woman divides, there's an element of oppressed oppression. There's an element of privilege. These things do have some merit, but it's easy for people in these spaces to fall into a, an all or nothing perspective where they can see men as the problem with everything in their life. It's always men. It's always oppression. And so for these people, transgender women specifically are the physical embodiment of, you know, men taking their form oh, and wow. erasing them. That's interesting. And so they have these yeah. very, very specific talking points they tend to utilize in that space of you know, the erasure of women and they call what I am women face because I'm mocking them. And, and that's actually the meanest, harshest group towards most transgender people. And so that's a group that I've encountered as well. And that's actually been a part of what I want to do is to create a very clear distinction between people who really do hate transgender people because they're radical feminists or because they're extremely religious and people who just have concerns. People like Nick Morabito, I mentioned, who wants to talk about washrooms or people who say, I'm really concerned about our prisons and some of the policies going on there, but I have no problem with someone like Julia existing. I just think we need to rethink this policy a bit. And I'm trying to separate those two groups so that we can have the conversations we need to have and also more clearly identify where hate is. Yeah. So important because I think the what happens is those loud voices scare both people like yourself who want to have these conversations and be in dialogue. And they also scare the people who are just curious and have concerns. And I mean, gosh, 99.99999% of the people I know who are straight, who want to have this conversation love the transgender people they know, love, would, would support anybody. And they're just like, should trans women be in women's sports? Should we be sharing bathrooms? Should prisons be? I mean, those are all important conversations. And what I find interesting about the conversation is that when we we talk about sports, for example, and again, I know for you listening, you might be like, this podcast is really going on the edge. Yeah, we have to talk about these things. And what I find Challenging in that convo is that you have these female athletes who've been working their whole lives to compete, and then a man transitions and dominates and wins first. And while that's obviously not every male who's transitions outcome, I think it's just important that we have the conversation about how do 
female or, or trans female athletes feel included in a way that feels right for them and male and also women feel included and loved because I think when we say, well, we don't want to cause harm, right? The language that we use to trans female athletes, we also don't want to cause harm to female athletes. Mm -hmm. And so how have you had this conversation? Because even as I'm doing this, I'm like, there are so many landmines in the language I'm using. And so to everyone who's listening, thank you for your grace as I explore <laughs> this delicate topic. What do you think about it? And I, I, and what do you feel is the, I guess, sort of like cultural temperature on it? Oh gosh, I could write a book. I'm thinking about writing a book about this. Cause you this should write a book, honestly. <laughs> I need you to really figure, should. I know a lot of authors now. I do a lot of author podcasts, so I have a lot of great connections. But I know how to write short scripts. Long, long books is something I have to give some thought to. But <laughs> It's going to be a new skill. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love adopting new skills. <laughs> the first thing I would say on that is I had a friend who I was talking about this stuff with, and she said, the funny thing about all of these controversial spaces is that they didn't work before anyways. And I think prisons is the clearest example for this, where if you've ever been in a prison, which I haven't, but I've seen enough of them to know that there's so many things that are wrong with the way that we do prisons. And you can zero in and say, biological men who might have committed you know, sex crimes and then they self-ID as women, that, that is a huge problem. That is a problem. And we need to think about that carefully and what we're doing but that's not the only problem. There's so many problems at the root of how the system is structured, and that is one of them. If you look at the data, 60% of sexual assaults on women in prison is, happens from the guards. So why do we have a system where 60% can come from guards? That seems like something we should fix and be able to fix, and there's so many things here. And so, well, this has gotten a lot of people upset because it's it strikes us as just so wrong and so obviously wrong. The problem existed before transgender women were in prison too. And I think the same thing happens with washrooms. There's a lot of things about how we do public washrooms that can lead to dangerous and uncomfortable situations. And that occurred before trans women were in women's washrooms as well. And so the first thing I do is I step back and I say, Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, like what what is what's not working overall? And then you mentioned the sports, the sports issue as well. And the sports one's funny. I probably have the least thoughts on it because I am not athletic. Um, I rock climb. I enjoy rock climbing, but other than that, uh, I do not enjoy great. physical activity and I would never take an award from anybody. That would never be a risk. So it's not something <laughs> I've given tons of thought to, but I do think it's important to distinguish between the professional sports and the, the casual sports. You know, I connect with women. That's who my friends are. If I was on a volleyball, you know, casual volleyball league, I'd want to play with the other women because they're my friends. And I think they'd be okay with that because it's not competitive. It's a bunch of people getting together mm -hmm. for fun. That is very different, as you said, than when we're looking at something like competitive sports and the Olympics looking for the world champion. Well, there is going to be a innate benefit if you have been on testosterone and you have had that you know, extra muscle and bone growth. And while some things like muscles will atrophy over time, bones won't. So there, there is still that, that benefit. Right. But at the same time, I also look at it and say, look at something like running, like sprinting. If you look at the world records for sprinters, they are always black men from Northern Africa, because physiologically speaking, they have an advantage, but we don't run white running and, and black running so that we, we can get the world champion of either. We kind of say, well, it just happens that biologically they have that advantage. So they, they tend to win in, in sprinting and that's, that's okay. And so then I start, and this is where I go down a rabbit hole, by the way, but then I start to think, <laughs> so what is even the point in sports? Like, why do we, what are we looking to achieve when we find the the strongest, the fastest, the best in something. And 
and I go existential at that point. So I don't have the solution on it, but I do think that, <laughs> that there's a deeper thing there and we need to be able to talk about it. We can't just say no, trans women are women, end of story, because we know that's not fair. People can sense that's not fair. And when we push that, it leads to people resenting transgender people in a way that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, I remember speaking to a friend of mine about this uh, trans women competing in women's sports. And she made such a beautiful point. She was like, well, and I hadn't thought of it. And this is why having conversations is so important. She had said, you know, if you look at, let's say, the way that um, the times and the success of females or swimmers in general is usually correlated to their height. Mm -hmm. And what happens if we just decided to, you know, segment them by height? I was like, that's actually a great idea. I was like, never thought of that. That it's like weight classes in boxing or et cetera. You don't put a hundred pound also, person against a four hundred pound person and see who is successful right. in boxing. Right. And and also being able to be, as you said, like with the realities that there are benefits to um going through a male puberty. And how do we take that into account? And the greatest question there is how, how do we do it instead of this is how we do it. And there's no other choice. As you said, when we do that, then we cause it. So as there's resentment, there's now it's your fault. We can't talk about this, which man, that's, it doesn't get us anywhere. We want everyone to feel heard. The cultural moment right now is just, it seems so locked in this place of, I want to make sure that I appear good and if I appear good, then every, I won't experience any social friction. I won't experience friction on social media. And I'm going to go after anyone who doesn't support the things I at least pretend to support. And, and do you know what that leads to? I, I think you're completely right that people want to appear good. And because of that, people don't talk to or associate with transgender people because they're scared. Because they, they don't want to talk to me because they might say he. And they might, they're confused. Am I a trans man? Am I a trans woman? What's the terminology? I'm not sure. And, and they're uncomfortable, but they don't want to be called out because we make it a big deal. And so what I try to do is to level that and say, it's not a big deal at all. You can call me Julia. If, if he comes out, that's fine. You can call me Jason if, that's, if that you're more comfortable with that. And, and I'd love to go and talk about the pronouns for a bit because that's been a journey I've yeah, gone on myself. When I, when I first transitioned, I loved to get she, her. It felt really good. It was very affirming and it helped me to... Mm-hmm establish my identity. Um, but I realized something, and that was that my friends who loved me and cared for me would sometimes say he, him, because they knew me as Jason, or because I'm five for 10 and I have a, you know, not a super low voice, but certainly lower voice than biological women would. And when that would happen, it would rip me apart. I might focus on it for days because it hurt that that friend would call me he, him. And of course it's accidental and she doesn't mean it, but it would put me into a place that was clearly not psychologically helpful. And when I really got to the root of that and reflected on it, I thought, oh gosh, this is because I'm living outside of reality. I am biologically male, but I'm pretending that I am just a normal, everyday biological female like my friends. And when they say he, him, it reminds me that they can, they see something different about me. It doesn't mean they don't love me. It doesn't mean they don't care for me, but they see something different about me. And that was kind of when I realized that's not helpful as a transgender person to deny reality. And so I was able to, with my therapy, work through getting to a point where I was perfectly accepting that I'm biologically male. I don't like it. I wish I wasn't, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And so that doesn't, that doesn't get to me anymore. And I was able to take that then a few steps further 
to get to the point now that when I'm connecting with people, I can say, call me what works for you. I would prefer she, her, but if, if you say, nope, I must use the pronouns that align with someone's biological sex, fine. I can have a conversation with you that I will work on your terms. Same with, am I a woman? Am I a man? It's like, if, if you say, nope, you are a man, I only use those words on a sex basis, then I'll say, okay, that's fine. If they say, you have to be Jason. Okay, well, then I'll be Jason. That's fine. And it doesn't get to me because I'm not looking for my affirmation through the language of others, which allows us to have conversations, allows us to bridge that gap. And the, the incredible thing that I think a lot of people miss then is it also never happens because it's not enjoyable for my interlocutor to call me he, him when it doesn't get to me. If they say, nope, I'm only gonna, I only call people by you know, their biological sex and I say, okay, and they call me he, him once or twice and I don't react, they start to feel bad. <laughs> they're like, oh, but you'd rather have she, her because who wants to intentionally say something that the other person doesn't want? And it doesn't prove a point because I'm accepting of it. So there's a lot of people who very publicly online will only ever call people by their biological sex and they'll, they'll make exceptions for me. There was a prominent journalist in the, in the feminist space who once sent me a private message. She wrote an article about me that was published. And in that article, of course, I'm a trans-identified male is the terminology that she uses. Um, and she wrote a letter to me and she said, I'm sorry I, I did that. I, um, I can't make exceptions for trans people who I like because it's a, it's a very, um, it's, a, it's a publication where this is what's expected of her. But it's like, even then she felt bad. And I just think that there's a lot of space here that we could be having these conversations, but the language ends up being the barrier so often. That openness that you have to other people's learning process and whatever is comfortable for them, as you said, even about that journalist, is there's a shift for them. There's a shift for them because there's an allowance. You know, I remember once getting a friend of mine's pronoun wrong and I kind of got scolded for it. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not intentional. There was like a condescending kind of reply to me. Um, and we talked through it after. And because really what I was sharing was I'm learning, like, give me space to learn. I'm not just going to get it right. Like, I, not only do I have all the years of my age that are programmed to use a pronoun with a certain visual, but also I know you and that, you know, that I, we just need grace for that exploration. When you were talking about that, that getting right with, I guess, reality, that seems so liberating. Like when you finally just sat with that, then you weren't, was the liberation coming from no longer trying to fight it, but rather just release and relax into who you are and what you're doing and how you're showing up and all that kind of thing? It, exactly. It was a powerful shift. It, it was. It was truly accepting who I am. And I'm not, I don't have external affirmation. I have internal affirmation. And that internal affirmation isn't even saying I'm a woman. It's saying I'm me. I'm just Julia. And I don't even have a word for what I am and that's okay. And it is as you said, extremely powerful. And it makes me resilient in a way that I had never imagined. I don't get hurt by the comments online because if someone says, you're a man, it's like, that is, that's true. I'm biologically male. And that doesn't, <laughs> you're like, that doesn't you affect can't me. Burn me. Yeah. And if they say something that's not true, they say, you're a pedophile who preys on children. Well, that isn't true. And there's no basis for that. And so false things don't hurt me. True things don't hurt me. I don't get hurt. And I, I think for a lot of us, it's the true things where we end up getting the most hurt because we have insecurities around what we know deep down we know is true about us that we're not good at something or that we you know, have shame or something like that. And I've been able to offload a lot of that, which has been, which has been really awesome. Yeah, you were talking about 
shame and your exploration of it and moving through it. I What you just said there is so powerful in that when someone points to a truth that we're afraid of or haven't accepted or are trying to hide, naturally, we're going to be reactive to that and hurt by that. I mean, you've certainly built up the right perspective to prepare for your acceleration on social media. <laughs> so well done. <laughs> you didn't know you were being prepared like a Jedi to be on Twitter because Twitter is, of course, the place of all trolling. Um, yeah, can we talk a little bit more about your journey with shame and and how that showed up for you and and how you moved through that? Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I was 12 years old when I came to identify myself as transgender and, and thought, oh, this is that's me. And I read the descriptions of people's blogs because it wasn't medical resources, but it it just echoed exactly how I had felt. So that was comforting to know, oh, there's a word for this. Oh, other people feel this way. But it was also something I didn't feel I could talk about because we did not talk about this in school. We didn't talk about it anywhere. And I was at a evangelical church. And this was right around the time that gay marriage was a controversial issue in Canada. So our church would have the anti-gay speakers in and we'd be signing all the petitions. Well, I wouldn't because I was a kid, but the, the adults would be signing these petitions against it. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh, if if being gay is this bad, they're not even talking about whatever I am, but this is like, this is way worse, right? Because this is like being gay, but also changing your body and all of these things. And so I told nobody until I was 18. I told my my girlfriend at the time then, but I held this immense shame that I was embarrassed and I couldn't even talk about it. And I would go to amazing lengths to hide this from my parents. I would write journals um, on an encrypted floppy drive and I would like encrypt the floppy disk and then I would hide it in my bedroom and it would be labeled something else and all of these things. And my parents didn't know anything about computers, so they wouldn't have known how to put the floppy into the computer probably, but but I was that (laughs) And you encrypted it too. And I encrypted it, right? And and I was that worried though. I was like, but what if they found out? And really... What if they found out? Like, I knew my parents wouldn't have hurt me or something like that. It was the embarrassment. It was the, it is so wrong that I feel this way and I have to bury it at all costs. And so, as I mentioned, I told my girlfriend when I was 18 um, and neither of us knew what to do with it, but I I just kind of said, like, I'm not going to transition though, of course, never, I'd never do that. So we just didn't talk about it. And four years later, I married her and every six months or so, maybe it would come up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I I married her. But um, it would come up maybe every four months or so. And she'd say, you know, you still feel that way? And I'd kind of say, I, I will always feel this way. It's, <laughs> I think about it more than I think about anything else in life, but I'm doing nothing about it. And what I didn't understand then was that shame and narcissism are highly connected, highly tied together. And I was very narcissistic in my life. And I was a very narcissistic husband with my ex-wife now because that did that marriage did lead to divorce and I was very focused on myself I was also completely I had erased the idea of happiness because when I decided I wasn't going to transition it was kind of like I knew what I needed to do to prosper I actively said I'm not going to do this and so what did I have to chase money you know importance in my career those those kinds of milestones but that was it and so it was not a happy marriage. Um, and I was emotionally abusive towards her. And the same thing, I didn't, I didn't see it. Like I, at th- that time, I had no idea. But this came to light for me towards the end of my marriage. She was, she was going to counseling and therapy because, of course, I wouldn't go. And so she was trying to find something to help her out. And her counselor said, you know, your husband sounds narcissistic. And she came home and told me this. And I'm like, how dare she diagnose me? She hasn't met me and all these things. But but looking back now, as I've now had my own help, my own therapy, and I've gone through this process, yeah, like I was not, 
I was not there for her in the relationship. I was focused on me, 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 because of this shame that I was constantly trying to compensate for and prove that I was awesome. And I want to go out and get glory and praise just to know that I was not, not as broken as I was. And when I was 28 years old, I ended up kind of driving my life into a, into a wall. Um, That was my marriage. That was my volunteer activities. I made some very, very poor decisions that led to me being expelled from, uh, from that. And I brought myself to a place where I was very suicidal. I, I ended up in the psych ward for a while. And then I finally thought I might as well try transitioning because if it, if this works and this makes me feel better, that's great. And if not, then I can, I can end it later and it's no worse off than if I end it now. So I did my transition and I started down that path and two things happened. One was I transitioned, which meant the gender dysphoria went away. But the other thing that I did was I dealt with that shame, that shame that was there that prevented me from even facing this and talking about it slowly went to nothing to where I am now where there just is no shame. And so now I'm sitting in this place of, I feel so much better. I am happily married. Um, I have my adopted daughter. I love my, I love my career. I love everything in my life, but I don't know how much of that was transitioning and how much of that was dealing with the shame of not being able to (laughs) talk about how I felt about my gender and, and they're, inextricably linked. So I don't right, think right. for myself, One I can the know. Other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What a journey. And that alchemizing of your shame, like, can I ask was, what was the sort of focal point of your shame? Was it in the, like your dysphoria and then in relation to like what you were taught as an evangelical Christian, were you still living as a Christian at that point to your divorce? Um, I was, yep. Yeah. yeah. I left, I left my church around the time that I divorced and decided to transition. It's hard to describe, but it was this shame that men should not, well, I think it's something a lot of men feel, that men should have an aversion to anything that would align with them being feminine. This is something I've read about a lot. Um, There's a book called Tomboy by one of my friends, Lisa Selen Davis, and she explores what a tomboy is, historically where it comes from, and goes into a lot of the exploration of gender. And she talks about how powerful the existence of tomboys are because it gives space for girls to be whoever they want to be. And we create that, right? Little girls can be very feminine. They can play with dolls. They can love Barbies, but they can also be very masculine. They can play with sports. They can love building things. They can love getting dirty and rough and tumble. And we call them tomboys. And that is a socially acceptable thing to be. And in her book, she talks about how girls who or tomboys tend to actually be more successful in life, not because of the boyness of it, but because of the diversity, because they've been able to kind of hit the full gamut of experience in a way that those who stick only in princesses don't get. But for boys, we're not there yet, right? For boys, sure, your boy can wear a dress. Sure, your boy can play with dolls, but there's judgment. And even if the parent doesn't judge their kid for that, society has judgment on that, and, and we know it. And definitely for me in the 90s, we absolutely knew it that, we had this deep judgment against anything feminine kind of coming into that masculine space, right? You're not supposed to play with the girls. You're not supposed to do those things. And for me, I carried that forward. And that was where the shame was coming from was I felt these things. I, I didn't want to do any of the boy things. I didn't want to connect the way the boys connected, but, but I shouldn't want to do these girl things. That was, there was something wrong about that. And I think the liberation I have now is realizing that there's, there is nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah, moving towards it and actually exploring those feelings, because you're so right. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, 90s mainly in like school time. And yeah, any sort of aspect of femininity. I mean, culturally, what was starting to be supported was homosexuality or, you know, lesbian, like that kind of thing, but not 
yeah, certainly not conversations about trans. Mm-hmm. Like that, I don't remember ever even hearing a conversation about that. And I feel like I grew up in pretty liberal spaces and liberal conversations. And I mean, one of my really good friends growing up was a tomboy, you know. So I remember her playing sports with us with everything. She was like always with us. And it was incredible. And there was no judgment about it. There was no thought actually even about it. But if a guy had been hanging out with the girls in a dress, you're right, there would have been an instant I hadn't really actually even considered that, you know, a girl can just wear pants or jog, you know, whatever, and become more masculine, quote unquote. Um, but for a boy to do that is certainly faced with a lot more social costs. And of course, what do we do when we're, especially in those delicate age groups where social hierarchy is being created and boys are really being judged based on their body's performance and their strength, et cetera. And women are being judged on really their appearance and, yeah, it's navigating that time of life is so hard. Like I think of the hardest years of my life were really like grade six to grade eight. Absolutely. When I coached soccer camps, they would be segmented by age, like five, six, seven, and nine, and then 10 to 13. And the difference in the like five and six and the seven and nine, and then the 10 to 13, 10 to 13 was where you started to see the constructs being formed of who they are. But to I had the privilege of fitting into that construct, although turning down my sensitivity because I was ashamed for being sensitive. So I did experience it, but not to even close the same level. But what a powerful shift that you've been able to move through and now bring the gifts and the path you've walked to other people who are walking it. It's been incredibly rewarding, and that's a large part of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So I... I'm producing videos. They're usually like five, six minute videos. And I put them out on Twitter and YouTube anywhere from one to four times a week, depending on how much time I have, just exploring all of these issues. Sometimes it's the social issues, like what we've been talking about here. Other times it's just talking about the importance of being open around this space, about the hate that does exist. Just anything in this space to say, we need to be able to talk about this stuff. And for me, the the response has been overwhelmingly positive. The, I get more messages than I know how to process. I, I try to respond to everybody, but there's just Great. too many. And because people want to be able to talk and people, the, the messages I love the most, and I get tons of these, are messages from people who say, thank you for reminding me it's not the people. You know, I've had these feelings of mm. anger or frustration about this policy or this or that or whatever it is. Thank you for reminding me it's not the people. It is this policy. It is this procedure. It is this law. It is there's something I don't like, and I can still push back against that, but it's not the people. And for me, that is what I want to achieve is separating those spaces so that we remember not to demonize the people and not to go after the people. That's when people get hurt. It is not hurtful for us to talk about which washroom I should use. It is hurtful for somebody to get a gun and kill me because they are have developed disdain towards transgender people. I'm curious, earlier, one thing that I wanted to ask you that you did touch on uh, was about um, transitioning and transitioning at a young age, like people in their teens. That is, of course, a really highly controversial subject, especially in the use of puberty blockers. I've read a lot and listened to a lot and learned a lot. And my sense, which I'm curious your thought on, my sense is that it's great to be open to getting education about these things. And I'm like, is it too early for a young person to block their puberty? Because I think about these people who want to detransition or do detransition and to undo, because you said like, hey, if you're kind of on the fence, this is a big deal, like the risks of it, the mm-hmm. all that. 
there seems to be, that seems to be where the center of like anger is, is that parents are like, hey, actually, no, you're not going to be giving my kid puberty blockers because they're actually not even studied in these places and they don't know the long-term effects and they're used in combinations that are not studied. What is your, and, and if I misrepresented any of that in any way, let me know. What is your sense of that? And what do you, I guess, recommend to parents and kids in, in that space? Yeah, this is this is the hottest topic right now, I would say. Something yeah, it's, that it's burning, this it's one, burning. for sure. Actually, as we're taping this, I saw texts come in from a, from some colleagues that I work on in this space, and I haven't read them yet, but I think something hit the news, so I'm going to have to check that afterwards. Oh, yeah. But the first thing that I would say on that is, we need to look at why people want to do this. Why would a kid want to transition? And sometimes it's just excitement. You you want to find this affirmation. You want to do what you want to do. And I understand that. I, I felt the same way. But the other reason is because they want to pass. And in this space, the word passability is referring to someone's ability to go out in public and not be instantly read as someone who was born the opposite sex and has transitioned. So in the case of biological males who want to transition to be female, look at me as a perfect example. I'm 5'10". I have these, you know, these broages here that are quite deep. I have, you know, the, the more rigid jawline here. There's a lot of things. And of course, my voice is lower. There's a lot of things that still read as having been biological male. And because discrimination does exist, that means that not, I'm going to have a different experience in life because lots of people won't accept me into their circles or into their places because I'm transgender. And that's the big driver, is a desperation to pass. And if you pause puberty and you get people on cross-sex hormones, they will pass because all of those changes that testosterone brought upon me will not happen to that individual. And while they will not be female, while they will not have a uterus and be able to have a baby, they can go through their life, they can enter any women's space that they want, and no one's going to complain because nobody will ever know (laughs) that that person is biologically male. That's the driver of the whole thing. And everything you said is true. There are risks, and we certainly don't fully understand Lupron, which is the main um, puberty blocker that's utilized. And there's absolutely a risk of people regretting this and having consequences that come out of it. But if we want to be able to create a space where we tell children they don't need to transition as children, then we need to face our society. We need to say, why is it such Mm. a problem if you don't pass? Why is it a problem if you spend your whole life as as somebody who is a biological male who's presenting as a woman why is that a problem? If we had a society where the answer was, it's not a problem, everybody loves me and treats me normally, well then, why would we ever want to transition that kid? But we're not at that place yet. I can't tell that kid it'll be fine because it will be harder for the kid if they can't do it at that age. And so that's, I think, the the challenging place that we sit on this topic. I love that you said that because you're right. If society was safe so that passing was not as much of an issue, then the conversation of transition might not be as big. Like there'd be this exploration of how I want to express myself as a boy or as a biological boy or a biological girl. And the diversity of that is actually not criticized, like the dress on in the group, you know, that type of thing. I'm not like considered how those two tie together, but thank you for bridging those. Because when, when I think about the long-term possible effects, you're right that one can't come without the other. Like you can't have... If we're not, if we're overly critical about being curious and having this conversation, then there's going to be a pushback against um, transgender people and the dialogue. But 
if we don't have the conversation, there won't be more openness and more, you know, the lack of need for passability. And I understand, I'm sure someone wants passability for their own personal reasons too, which I, again, I, I could never understand because I am a guy and that's how I make my way through the world. What do you recommend for like parents navigating this with their children and how to explore this conversation so the child can hear their concerns, but also, you know, I, I, now being a parent, I guess I know I, I can say this, which is like, it still is the parent's job to protect the child. And that's where I think, and whatever protect I get can be very subjective because when the school intervenes there and says they know best, that's a problem. We've already talked about that. But how does a parent, like, what would you have hoped your parents could say to you that would allow you to explore this with curiosity, but not rush into it and, and respect maybe boundaries that they place in? Yeah. I, I talked to a lot of parents and it's, the conversations break my heart because the way that these conversations usually begin is from a place of desperation. And I get on the phone with them or I meet them in person. And for the first few minutes, they usually just tell me they're not transphobic. They explain to me that they love their kid. They love their kid no matter what. They promise they love their kid, but they have concerns. And they're so used to having to justify it because we create this space of if you don't support your kid in a transition, you don't love your kid you don't affirm your kid and all the, the so they you start there. Accept them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So they kind of say, no, I will accept, but, and then they tell me why they're concerned because they know their kid. They've had this kid for a long time and they know that they fall into this. So they know that their best friend just transitioned or whatever their concerns are about why they may think this is not right for their kid. And where I try to guide those parents is to a place of partnership with their child. You know, let your kid, let your kid know that you are not anti-transition. You want what's best for them, and that might be transition. But let's find this out together. Let's go on that journey. And depending on where you are, if you're in Ontario here, as we already talked about, the therapists and the counselors, they're not necessarily going to guide you down that journey because they don't want to fall into a place where they're being accused of of conversion therapy. But that conversation needs to be explored. Is this the best path forward? You think it's the best path forward? And it might be, but are you sure? I look at something like my, my daughter's looking at universities right now. And we're looking at all the options. We went up to see Ottawa U because she wants to do nursing and she loved it. And she thought, I could see myself here. And we're like, great. I'm so glad you could see yourself here. Let's look at 10 more because what if there's a better <laughs> fit? What if something else is going to fit right. even more? And if not, if, if it's still Ottawa U, then we will put you in Ottawa U. But there's no reason to just stick with that. And I think this is the same thing. If you think that transition is going to fill that hole that you feel, that void and, and create something for you, like, that's that's beautiful. That's wonderful. But that's a one-way street in certain respects. So let's let's look around a bit too. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's let's just see. And if if you're right in the end, then then you're right. But let's let's explore this a bit. And I think if if the kid knows, if you have the kind of relationship where they know that you really do have their back, and this is not you trying to stop them, this is you genuinely exploring, then it, it can work. And sometimes it does result in transition. Many other times it doesn't result in transition. What would be a recommendation to people who are engaging in this conversation or desire to? Like for the people who are maybe holding their breath and just worried, how, how, yeah, what advice would you give them to begin to at least step into the curious exploration and being a voice? Because I think the real challenge we're having in so many aspects of our culture is we have a culture of silence because people are afraid of being shamed for not being supportive of everything. And the the illusion that 
criticizing something means you don't support it. I think the the biggest advice that I would give, and this applies to anybody moving into this space, is that never lose sight of the fact that identity, or specifically gender identity, is not everything. It's easy for it to become your everything and you can become fixated on it. That's something that's universal in the LGBT space. There's, um, I, I want to call him a kid. He's about 21 now. But there's a, an individual who I knew a few years ago and he, um, I met him for coffee once and he was gay. And as he was talking to me, I don't know, an hour in, I kind of realized he was only gay. And what I mean by that is that was his only identity. Everything he would talk about was fixated on his being gay. So I kind of brought this up and said, that's awesome that you're gay. What else, what else do you do? And like, and, and he, he literally said nothing. It's like, no, I'm just, everything was fixated on his being gay. A few months later, I then found out that he wasn't even sure if he was gay anymore, if that was ever true, but he didn't know how to let go of it because this was the identity he had built. All of his friendships, all of his hobbies, all of his everything, his place in the world was being a young gay man. And there's nothing wrong with being a young gay man, but None of us should only be our sexual identity and none of us should only be our gender identity. And so as you move into this space and you end up in those circles, and as I mentioned, they can seclude themselves to have a safe transition space. It's very easy for it to become your everything. And that leads to an unhealthy place, whether you're trans or not, that leads to an unhealthy place when this is the majority of who you, how you place yourself in the world. So my biggest advice to anybody is if you're at that place, you're not ready to transition. If you're at a place that you are completely fixated on your, your gender identity, you need to work on that. You need to work on diminishing it so it is not the biggest part of your identity, so that you have other hobbies and interests and connections. And you still might transition. You still might find that that is what you need. And I think that that is fine. But if you're fixated on it and you're obsessed with it, that's not a healthy time to, to start down that path. Julia, I have... Absolutely love this conversation. Like I could talk to you for hours and I think we need to, what I'm going to do is send a message out to my audience after this goes out to then ask what more questions they have if you'd be open to to coming back on. Oh, absolutely. I can also talk about this stuff for hours, so I'd be honored to. For people listening, where can they find more of you? These I know you have your YouTube, your Twitter. I know you're not a super fan of Instagram yet. Uh, <laughs> I messaged you on there. You're like, um, I don't actually use this really. Yeah, I have an Instagram and a TikTok, but my daughter has to use those for me. I don't know how to how to navigate those two worlds. But um, Twitter is my big space. That's where I post a lot of my stuff first. Um, I'm putting them on YouTube as well because I'm scared that Twitter is going to fall apart and die in the next few months. So I'm starting up a YouTube channel. It's very small right now, but everything that I put up on Twitter, I have kind of shadowed there on, on YouTube as well. Um, both of them are under Alada Malata. That is my, that is my online, online name, Alada Malata. That's so great. Okay, well, we'll make sure that we link all the connections to you. And uh, yeah, I have to, again, just say thank you for being so courageous in this space and for being so... Um, gracious with uh my questions and the like you know dancing use of language so i appreciate you absolutely thank you so much for having me today 